urge school board members to preserve the integrity of the science curriculum by affirming the teaching of this theory of evolution as a core component of human knowledge. We ask that science remain science and that religion remain religion, two very different but complementary forms of truth. It is really striking to me that in this day and age we need to make that kind of a statement, that there are so many people who are trying to treat evolution as one theory among others and trying to treat, to teach creationism in schools and question the discovery of science that is so foundational as evolution. But it, we felt it was necessary. So did any of you see the lunar eclipse last week? Several of you were up early enough. I'm not an early riser, but I dragged myself out of bed to go see it. It was beautiful. <coughs> Actually, the, that event was three things in once, and that same convergence of three events has not occurred since the year 1866. So seemed like a special time to see. I've seen many lunar eclipses, but this one was quite special because it was a blue moon, the second full moon of the month. It was a super moon because it was uh, as bright as the moon gets in the course of the year, very close. And it was a blood moon called that because that's the color the moon turns during an eclipse. I have dearly loved astronomy since I was eight years old. But I was discouraged from thinking about making astronomy a career by those who saw my interest as inappropriate for a female. Growing up in the 1950s, I used to frequent the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. <coughs> Once in my 10-year-old enthusiasm, I went up to the lecturer after a sky show and told him that I wanted to be an astronomer. He looked at me skeptically and said, but you won't be. You will marry and have kids instead. As if the two are incompatible. Another time, I wrote to the Hayden Planetarium asking them to send me a pamphlet they advertised which outlined the steps needed for a career in astronomy. When I received it, I found in it paragraph stating something like this. I wish I had kept it. Girls often also become interested in astronomy. They rarely become astronomers, but sometimes they grow up to marry astronomers. <laughs> yes, in print it said that. Even my dear, dear mother told me I should learn to type rather than pursuing a man's career. Well, despite these influences, I did find myself sometimes defiantly dreaming about becoming an astronomer. And perhaps I would have become one had it not been for the fact that I did not take that easily to advanced mathematics in college, um, but also that I found I was very interested in philosophy and religion in college, as well as education, music, literature, and especially writing. So it makes sense to me that I wound up in a pulpit instead of under an observatory dome. Still, over the years, I have maintained an interest in astronomy 
as an amateur. If I were to take my telescope out just before dawn tomorrow morning and look through it at Jupiter, I would be able to see what Galileo saw in 1609 and 1610 as he observed that giant planet. What he saw convinced him that the church and the scientists of the time had it all wrong. When Galileo observed Jupiter through his telescope, he saw four bright objects close to Jupiter, four moons that over several nights moved, and he could see that they moved around the planet. This was heresy, a viewpoint that shattered the pervading belief that all celestial objects circled the Earth. Galileo then turned his telescope toward Venus and discovered that Venus has phases like our moon, which you need a telescope to see. These phases could only be explained if Venus moves around the sun and not the Earth. Church officials and even some scientists at the time were so rooted to their preconceived beliefs that they questioned the optics of Galileo's telescope or even thought that he was just playing tricks on them. Late tonight, we can see the moon rise, now less full than it was during the eclipse, and see it cross the sky. In his telescope, Galileo saw mountains, valleys, and other features on the moon, features that he saw change as the moon changes position with respect to the sun. This showed him that the moon is not a perfect, immutable sphere as it was supposed to be, according to the church. You all know what happened to Galileo when he used these observations to challenge the authorities of his day. The church forced him to renounce his scientific claims, and he remained under house arrest for the rest of his life. As a young practicing Catholic and an aspiring astronomer, I often thought about what looked to me, even centuries later, like an incompatibility between the fields of science and religion. On more than one occasion, I remember being in a Catholic confession booth and asking the priest to help me reconcile such ideas as, for instance, the scientific fact of evolution and the scriptural account of creation. Their answers that, for instance, the six days of creation in scripture is metaphorical, and they were broad-minded enough to think that way, the priests I went to, metaphorical and not literal, those answers satisfied me for a while. But as a teen, I became weary of other aspects of that faith, and I finally left the church. When I was in high school, I came across a little poem by Walt Whitman, a poet I much admire, still very much admire. This is a fragment from his work, Leaves of Grass. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and the diagrams to add divide and measure them. When I, sitting, heard the astronomer, how he lectured with 
much applause in the lecture room. How soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time, looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Well, as a passionate amateur astronomer, I found this fragment of poem of my hero, Walt Whitman, to be disappointing. Whitman contrasts the lecture of the astronomer with the raw beauty of the unexplained stars and finds the lecture lacking. I remember thinking, hmm, I would have stayed and heard the whole lecture. Because even the facts and figures of a scientific lecture for me contain beauty and mystery. The astronomy lectures I attended in those days were like religious services to me, in many ways more meaningful than the Catholic masses I had gone to. Perhaps Whitman's lecturer was just very dull and drained all the beauty out of the science. Science certainly can be beautiful. Nowadays, there are many scientists who experience a kind of beauty, a sense of awe, a religious or mystical feeling when they study and contemplate the laws and workings of the universe. I am no scientist, but I have had religious feelings aroused in me when reading about the new physics or when looking up the at the stars, at comets, planets, and galaxies with the naked eye or through a telescope. It is amazing to me that we live in a universe that is not haphazard and inconsistent, but one that is governed by the laws of physics, a universe in which science and mathematics work. In his book, The Mind of God, Physicist Paul Davies writes, Science is a noble and enriching quest that helps us to make sense of the world. It does not deny a meaning behind existence. On the contrary, the fact that science works, and works so well, points to something profoundly significant about the organization of the cosmos. The scientific quest is a journey into the unknown. Each advance brings new and unexpected discoveries. But through it all, writes Davies, through it all runs the familiar thread of rationality and order. This cosmic order is underpinned by definite mathematical laws that interweave each other to form a subtle and harmonious unity. The laws are possessed of an elegant simplicity and have often commended themselves to scientists on grounds of beauty alone. Beauty alone, says the scientist. There is great beauty in science and mathematics, and many scientists have recognized it. To ignore the discoveries of science in favor of a literalist religious worldview as people amazingly still do, seems very sadly narrow and one-sided. But likewise, 
to embrace only a mechanistic scientific materialism which asserts that all phenomena can be explained in terms of the actions of material components, even love and altruism, which are in this view just chemical states in the brain or adaptive functions of evolution. This too strikes me as too narrow. I believe there is a ground beyond scientific materialism and religious fundamentalism, a ground where science and religion, cosmologies and theologies, experiments and mystical insights can meet and converse and inspire each other. Albert Einstein once said that religion without science and science without religion are each missing something. Science without religion can be empty and dry, even tragic, if it recognizes only a cold, purposeless, indifferent universe and sees our amazing existence and our human consciousness as mere accidents. What I mean by religion here is not a set of creeds, but an attitude of receptiveness to the sense of awe and wonder, an openness to the mystery that lies at the center of being, behind the discoveries of science. Cosmologists are getting closer to explaining the first moments of the universe, and some theoretical models speculate, with the laws of quantum physics to back them up, that the cosmos was self-creating, emerging naturally 15 billion years ago out of what they call the super-dense singularity, that little point, the freckle, <coughs> an infinitesimal point where space, energy, and time are all collapsed together. The singularity exploded and became our universe of matter and energy. And the universe, as the story said, has been expanding ever since. Now, a self-creating model of the universe requires no need of a prime mover, a god, to set it going. For some scientists, that idea may put the need for a god or for any divine or mystical dimension completely to rest. But others point out that the great mysteries are still there. Why is there a universe at all? And where do the laws and exquisite mathematical equations of physics come from? As physicist Stephen Hawking puts it, why does the universe go through all the bother of existing? What is it, he asks, that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? As a theology professor, I once heard lecture put it, I love it this, in this form, why is there not nothing? It's a provocative way to pose the mystery. Why is there not nothing? In the final analysis, analysis <clears throat> science can only bring us right up to the brink of this mystery but it can't definitively answer it. This why is a religious question. Scientist Robert Jastrow, in his book, God and the Astronomers, 
says that scientists have solved one mystery after another, right back to the moment of the Big Bang. But they can't go back beyond that. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, says Jastrow, the story ends like a bad dream. Scientists have scaled the mountains of ignorance and are about to conquer the highest peak. As they pull themselves over the final rock, they are greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. can just imagine the meaning of the two. <laughs> the frontiers of modern science, particularly physics, are bumping up against the frontiers of new theologies these days. One modern theology took its inspiration from the work of the mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. It's called process theology, although that is not his term for it. Whitehead sought to blend theology and quantum physics in the 1920s. Quantum physics, discovered then near the beginning of the 20th century, introduced uncertainty and chance into our previously neatly predictable and deterministic universe. In process theology, the universe is a vast web of interconnected events characterized by chance and change as well as order. All things are incomplete and are continually in the process of becoming, including God, for those process theologians who are theists, and some of them are not. The future in this process view is open, not determined. All entities, be they humans or galaxies or elephants or quarks, all are interdependent and the activities and choices of each create the universe anew in each moment of time. The process God does not direct events, but participates with beings in the creative process and lures or persuades them toward a positive direction. God both influences and is influenced by the unfolding drama of the cosmos. Well, this idea of God is certainly very different from the traditional, static, perfect, distant, and all-powerful God most of us grew up with. It's one that I personally have much more resonance with. We can see possible, uh, positive evidence that the universe unfolds in a positive direction, as process theology says, when we look at how evolution on Earth has resulted in great diversity and increasingly complex forms. The physicist Freeman Dyson has suggested that the universe seems to be constructed in just the right way so as to result in maximum diversity. There is abundant cosmic diversity, many kinds of stars, galaxies, and nebulae, many varieties of particles and elements, and there is a great diversity of biological life on this planet, and perhaps on other planets as well. <coughs> Yet none of it would have come about if the universe were the slightest bit different from what it was at the beginning. If, for instance, the rate of expansion of the universe were smaller 
by one part in a hundred thousand million million. Also, if the strong nuclear force, the force that holds the nuclei uh, in a, of an atom together, uh, if it were a tiny amount weaker than it is, there would have been only hydrogen in the universe. And if it were only slightly stronger, all the hydrogen would have been converted to helium and stuff wouldn't happen. <laughs> the stuff we see and are. In short, if any of a number of factors, speeds, temperatures, forces, were off by an unimaginably tiny, tiny amount, stars and the heavier elements would not have formed and we wouldn't be here contemplating it all. But the force was with us, to borrow a phrase, and here we are. As Stephen Hawking wrote, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Hawking is an avowed atheist, yet he finds himself at the brink of the religious when contemplating the fact that we exist at all. This awesome universe of ours breathes to the rhythm of elegant equations, glows bright with mystery and meaning, and shines forth with an exquisite beauty and diversity. That we are a part of it all is an amazing, astounding miracle. I want my religious insights to be informed by silence. Si I'm sorry, science. <laughs> Sometimes silence, yes. I want my religious insights to be informed by science and my scientific understandings to be infused with religious meaning. I want to listen to what the learned astronomer has to say. And then, in the mystical moist night air, go outside and look up in perfect silence at the stars.